Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Howdy, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it damn better? Today, we're reviewing two twin movies set in a world where society escapes reality by living via real-life avatars, and a man tries to stay alive while exposing conspiracy which will affect the freedom of the human race. It's Gamer versus Surrogates. Let the games begin. So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 4th of September 2009, Game was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. In a future mind-controlling game, death row convicts are forced to battle in a doom-type environment. Convict Cable, controlled by Simon, a skilled teenage gamer, must survive 30 sessions in order to be set free. What a synopsis. Gabe, did you originally catch Game when it was released at the pictures at the movie cinema? And what was that experience like? I didn't. So there was no experience there. Uh, I watched this on, I'm going to say DVD, in the late 2000s. And uh, that's where I first encountered GameUp. I may well have watched it two or three times since. Did you see it at the movies, Ben? No, unlike the uh, the classic year of 1999 when all those great twin movies and independent films came out, I did not catch this at the cinema. I caught this in preparation for this podcast on the video on demands, if you will. And uh, I don't think my experience would have been improved being at the cinema, which we'll get to. <laughs> really? No way. Oh, man. I love them, Neverdean Taylors. Um, so I'm surprised this is the first time you ever watched this. Yeah, yeah. I. Don't know why. I think it's because it came out the same year as Crank 2, High Voltage, their sequel to Crank, and they actually made this before Crank 2. Wow. And then, excuse the pun, but cranked out Crank 2 after that. And I saw that because I was all in on Crank, more actually because of the low-budget filmmaking style of these guys where they really decided to make it for the smell of an oily rag and lean into Mm. the lo-fi nature of it as an advantage. Mm. Which, we will, which we will talk about. Yeah, whereas this film actually was a classic case of perhaps having too many toys in the toy box. So, yeah, first time ever. Um, later on, though, in 2009, on the 25th of September, Surrogates was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. Set in a futuristic world where humans live in isolation and interact through surrogate robots, a cop is forced to leave his home for the first time in years in order to investigate the murders of others' surrogates. Gabe, talk me through when and where you first watch Surrogates. This one's weird because I might have seen it at the movies. I just don't know because without spoiling a review, it's a movie so instantly forgettable that I just I feel like I might have seen it at the movies. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe a surrogate saw it and then wiped its brain afterwards because it was so unimpressed by the movie. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because I remember seeing the trailer, and again, we will talk about what I'm about to describe in depth, but Bruce Willis's hair as a robot made me want to see the movie. I just don't remember if I did. But When you say Bruce Willis's hair, you mean <laughs> not actually his hair, but that small marsupial perched upon his head. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's amazing. It's amazing. But but in the end, it wasn't enough, was it? No. 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 Yeah, this film is funny to me. I feel this film somehow lives in some of those neurological explanations where you think you saw something like deja vu, but it didn't actually happen. It's like that whole uh, concept about Sinbad. What's that story again we always talk about with the idea that everyone thinks there's a movie called Sinbad. No, no, no. They think it's the Mandela effect, Ben. They think there was a movie starring Sinbad called Kazam. No, Shazam. But in fact, there was a movie starring Shaq called Shazam. And everyone, including me, thinks that this movie existed. I think Sorry gets to the reverse of that because this film exists in real life, but I feel it doesn't. I feel it's actually an alternative universe where this film actually exists and made $600 million internationally around the world. Like, I can't even remember this movie in relationship to other movies around it, like when it was released. I saw it at the cinema myself in 2009. I've always been a big fan of, you know, high-concept sci-fi. Uh, this was based on a graphic novel, which I hadn't read, but I thought that was interesting as a premise. And Jonathan Moscow has got a pretty checkered past, but I actually did enjoy Terminator 3. So I turned up at the movies to see this, I know I did in theory because I've seen it at the cinema, but I have had my mind erased since that and I can't just even recognise this film being part of the public consciousness. And I actually wonder if this relates to its 85-minute duration. Maybe it was just so short that we all blinked and it was over, even though I know that you love short and sharp 85-minute movies, including credits. You think you think that would tick a really big box for me and it feels so much longer. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It does. It feels like a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Oh. Look, perhaps before we get to the review, let's just do a quick little um, history lesson, a bit of a uh, shallow dive into the Hollywood history behind these two flicks. So we mentioned earlier that Gamers by Nelvadine Taylor, that's sort of like their credit on screen. That's Mark Nelvadine and Brian Taylor, two kind of renegade-style TV commercial directors who got their big break with the lo-fi film Crank starring Jason Statham. Uh, looking, you know, online as to how this film actually originated, it seemed just to be something where basically Lakeshore Entertainment had reteamed with them after the success of Crank in 2006. They came to the table with a new original idea, which they had written and were to direct, and this was just basically a step up in terms of budget and scale. It's taking all that kind of that visual aesthetic that they have, that kinetic edit editing and just sort of applying it to a bigger canvas. Uh, but beyond that, it didn't actually originate from any source material beforehand. It wasn't an erase the finishing line with surrogates because surrogates, in contrast, is actually based on a comic book series from 2005-2006 called The Surrogates. And interestingly enough, it appears actually that Elizabeth Banks, of all people, was one of the people in the first instance who actually kind of got on board this. Can you believe that? Yeah, I saw the name Elizabeth Banks in the credits and I just assumed it must have been, you know, another Elizabeth Banks. No, but same one. In fact, yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Anywho, so once again, I think for the, what, 99th time out of 100, uh, it just appears to be pure serendipity that both these films were produced and released at the same time. So let's get then to our review, starting with Gamer. Gabe, did it? Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with surrogates? Ben, 
I like this movie a lot. It is spectacularly stupid. And I'm on board with it. Like, like insanely dumb. I guess what's a what's a term that doesn't seem too insulting? Like what's a nice version of the word like shit-tastic? <laughs> uh, poo-terrific? <laughs> no, no, still mean. Still maybe something that doesn't have like turd in it, you know. Uh, or maybe like rolled gold glitter turd. <laughs> and I mean that in the best way. Like like I, I enjoy the heck out of this movie. Like some of the choices are just really, really dopey and wild. Like I, I like all of Neville Dean and Taylor's movies just because like – I don't know. I just like their their really over the top aesthetic. You know, um, there's sequences in this that are like cut, like you know, the opening of Moulin Rouge. It's just like four frame shots, four frame shots, four frame shots. I like it. I like it. Maybe it was because I was drinking triple shot espressos um, when I watched it, but. I, I really got on board the dumbness and funness of this movie. Well, you love choices. And when I say that, you love when a filmmaker actually makes a choice to do something quite distinctive. And it may work or it may not work, but at least they kind of went for it. In this film, these filmmakers, in fact, every film they make, they always do that. They actually just lean in hard to a certain choice and push it to like 11 out of 10. Totally. What are the totally key, I guess, stylistic flourishes you'd use to try and characterise these guys as a filmmaking duo. You mentioned earlier the fast cutting with like, you know, four frames, um, which is to give context for our non-filmmaking podcast listeners, there are 24 frames per second in a movie. So four frames is like a tiny percentage of a second and that's how long that shot is. What are other stylistic touches you'd use to describe these guys? Um I mean, if you ever watch one of the behind the scenes of their movies, it's really interesting what they do. Like, for instance, they use like those sort of hyperkinetic GoPro shots or they'll like tow themselves on rollerblades behind cars. Um, yeah, Nelvedine's the guy you always see doing crazy uh, shit where he's on rollerblades down a hill, filming at the same time and turning. Yeah. Like he is both a stuntman, a camera operator and a director at the same time. Totally bungee, bungeeing himself off cliffs and things, you know, to get, you know, shots. So they have that. But I guess, you know, the the performances are really pushed and kind of grotesquely over the top, you know, like, and I mean, in particular, say, like Milo Ventimiglia, that guy, Michael C. Hall is the bad guy. And I can see why some of these things are off-putting. It's like it's made by people with very, very serious ADHD, you know. Um, um, but like I said, I I think if you're willing to to go with the sort of grotesquerie of it all, it's it's a fun time. Like, and yeah, like I, like you said, I like it when people make choices, you know, like – there's other movies, you know, for instance, the other movie that we'll be talking about today that could have done with a choice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this film to me reminds me of basically taking a Broca or something like an aspirin, throwing it inside a Red Bull, shaking it up and then cracking it open. Like it is just bursting through the seams with just energy. Like it is so in your face. I think you either love it or you hate it. It's the sort of film I feel that, say, Roger Ebert or in Australia, David Strathairn would actually – David Strathairn? David Stratton. <laughs> oh, David Stratton, noted film Yeah, critic. exactly, not David Strathairn from uh, Good Night and Good Luck. 
but David Stratton or someone like that would say it's a video game movie, which is their kind of shorthand to criticise it for saying that it perhaps does sort of reward a short attention span and it's made by filmmakers that perhaps have a short attention span. Um, that's kind of, I think, the intent behind the filmmakers and I actually think that's what they love. And so I think this film is very much an auteur film in that way. Like, oh, ab- ab- Absolutely. I would say you said Crank 2 came out the same year. It is not nearly as awesome as Crank 2 in terms of really pushing – you know, in Crank 2, there's the bit where they have, like, J- Jason Statham has, like, a Godzilla fight where he's wearing a Jason Statham mask, you know, which is it's just absolutely gonzo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Crank 2. And this suffers maybe a little bit because maybe because it's, like, a, is this a studio film or because of the budget that they, they almost probably can't go, you know, just full tilt boogie. But, but they get enough. They get enough of it in there. Yeah, well, this is a $50 million movie and so therefore you can just see that they have to try and sand down the corners of Nelvity and Taylor's aesthetic and storytelling techniques mm. to make it a bit more accessible to a mainstream audience. I think these guys are a really great example that when you've got a really low budget, you actually have much more freedom to do make creative choices that would otherwise not be seen in a mainstream film. Like in Crank, which costs $12 million and wanted to make $43 million, it is just in your face and if you liked Gamer, you really love Crank and same with Crank 2. And Crank 2, I just think, as you said before with that example about the Godzilla fight, really just amplifies the style of Crank. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I feel like these guys actually suffer when they actually do have to try and tone down their filmmaking techniques for a more mainstream movie because then you risk actually – it being taken too seriously. I think that's the difference between Crank, Crank 2, and on the other side of the fence, Gamer, is that to me it's less clear that Gamer is satirical. And to me we're in a situation where we're looking at something like, for example, Starship Troopers, where the filmmakers are trying to be satirical and they're making crazy choices and being over the top with the acting performances, with the camera style, with the nudity with the depictions of sex and everything, but it's watered down just enough that I think you might lose some of that satire and therefore it comes off as being a bit dumb, which is the way that some people misinterpreted Oh, yeah, 100%. Starship Troopers when it came out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is fundamentally not a satire gamer. Like, it just, it's not. If you asked me to describe the plot, I'd really have no idea. Its ideas aren't particularly done in a sophisticated way. There's no depth to it. You know, like um, a movie like Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, you know, like that both exists kind of as a parody or a satire of what it is, an action movie, you know, because like is Quaid having a dream about being in an action movie, but also is just a fucking awesome action movie. But this has no sort of philosophical depth, you know, like and it doesn't really interrogate its ideas Whatsoever. Well, that's the. It is to- totally surface, right? Like, yeah, hundred percent. And I think you have a great reference there to Paul Verhoeven. I mentioned Starship Troopers before. You mentioned Total Recall. Now you pretty much add Basic Instinct and Showgirls on that list. He's a great example of filmmaker who released a film. Half the audience got it was satire. Half the audience enjoyed it for what they thought it was satirizing, like a sex thriller or a 
um, science fiction thriller slash drama. And then they're being critically reevaluated 10, 20, 30 years later and appreciated even more. Like we've actually seen the satire in time. And I guess that points to Verhoeven actually being really ahead of the curve. Oh, yeah. And I don't think Gamer, 11 years later in 2020, is a film that actually does benefit from the history of time since then. I don't think it is a satire. I think it might have been intended to be, given the way that some scenes are shot, but I don't think the final film is that. Um, for me, one of the things that I find really interesting about this film, and to me, I could see this as categorised as a video type, video game movie, you know, for young kids, is these guys love their sex, don't they? Like <laughs> they love their exploitation and there must be about 200 shots of the camera at kind of like knee level pointed up following the ass of the actor, what's her name, Amber Valletta? Oh, yes. Running around in, for about 20% of the movie and like lots of shots of like naked oh, – women who are like topless and so on with the camera just sort of zooming in and zooming out, zooming in and zooming out. Like it does have that kind of slightly gross feel and with the really hyper stylized color palette and that high con- contrast look, it, I don't know, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable actually. It feels very Maxim magazine, you know, early 2000s. <laughs> <clears throat> and they do that thing where they cut to like the – the guy who's controlling um, Amber Valletta and he's like this really, you know, very intentionally gross, morbidly obese, sweaty man, you know. His depiction is just awful. Like he comes across as a disgusting character, doesn't he? And he reminds me, like, I feel they were 100% inspired by that guy that's found dead. Oh, in, in Seven? Seven, yeah. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. But, but like, it's that's, that's where the film isn't, you know, sophisticated in its ideas whatsoever because it's just saying, oh, the only people who would be interested in this are the kind of worst cliché. And it's like as if there aren't fucking just, you know, heaps of regular people out there who wouldn't be just jacking it hard to this shit. You know, like yeah, you're hundred percent right. Like they've tried to push to the extreme by having his avatar be a very attractive young woman, and he is a very unattractive, morbidly obese, uh, introverted, uh, undesirable character. Which is, I guess, trying to like make the point that he's that's the nature of avatars. But you're right. Like, couldn't it be a guy in a suit who's just sort of like pretending to be a surfer or committing acts of S&M or something like that? Yeah, I, I think it just seems very basic, I guess. It's like, ha, 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 this is what these people would be like and it's like I just don't think that's interesting in a way, you know? like, I- Yeah, like if you're going to have a film about avatars, you could actually have really interesting things where perhaps, for example, a husband and wife uh, team actually encounter each other not knowing it. Um, ironically, perhaps they've swapped genders or they're the same gender in, in that game society on screen or, you know, something awful like, you know, a boss and an, an employee or a brother and a sister or like there are many more nuanced and interesting ways you explore that idea of having an avatar and what sort of people choose an avatar and then what avatar they choose and that's never really explored at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, save some of them for our uh, sequel pitches, Ben, because Mr and Mrs Smith in the world of avatars, hey, maybe that's an idea, you know. <laughs> Actually... Speaking of characters, Simon, who is the gamer who controls Cable, 
Doesn't this feel like the sort of film where it's confusing as to who is actually the protagonist? I mean, Cable ultimately is, but that character Simon is a two-dimensional character and there's no actual sense of him being anything other than being a cliched teenage boy. I feel it's a really disappointing choice and a missed opportunity. Yeah, so so in the film, Jerry Jerry Butler is some sort of prisoner who who, yeah, is controlled by this kid, which it sort of doesn't work because for 27, you know, uh, matches of Slayers, Jared Butler has won, but he hasn't won. The kid has won. So he's just a meat puppet. So it w- on some level, wouldn't the film have been better if they dropped the, you know, uh, kid control player thing? Like, wouldn't it have given Jared Butler's character some actual, you know, autonomy? Well, then wouldn't it be the running man? Yeah. Or Which rules. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, like, ah, I don't know, like, just fucking make the running man. Like, like it. Cause I'm with you. It's, it's, it's nebulous and Logan Lerman, who plays Simon, kind of just isn't in it enough. The relationship between him and Jared Butler isn't, like, explored in a really interesting way. And I think... About halfway through, you know, Terry Crews turns up as like this psychopath called Hackman who has no player behind him. So he doesn't experience the ping. And then, you know, um, Logan Lerman uses a hack or something to let Jared Butler's cable off the hook so he can become controlled by himself. But it's like, dude, this kid got you 27 wins in a row. You should probably just let him keep controlling you. You've never done this before. Yeah, I think the one story detail they drop in, which is meant to try and make you side with the idea of Logan Lerman actually endangering Cable, is that there's a slight delay of time, like a microsecond between when Logan Lerman's character does a move, like a punch, before then Cable punches at the same time. And the point being is essentially Cable is like let off the hook. He could just fight himself and actually fight better and have less close shaves. But it doesn't really explore that at all. No, no. And um, while we're here talking about actors, can we talk about Michael C. Hall oh, as Ken Castle, the creator? Yeah, actually, bef- before we go there, one little quick thing. I sort of feel there's a possibility that they could have done something similar to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So what's the name of that combination where you've got, like, uh, that big guy? Oh, yeah. And that little guy. Master Blaster. Master Blaster. Who owns Barter Town. Yeah, exactly. Like, I sort of feel you could have done, like, a digital version of Master Blaster where you have basically Cable is the Blaster version, right, and Logan Lerman is the Master version. And there's a whole journey that happens in that movie, right? What? Where- wait, 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 wait. Just so I'm... Understanding you, you would have liked a version of this where Jared, where Logan Lerman is perched on Jared Butler's shoulders. No, no, it's a digital version. It's the same character journey. So in that film, uh, they're like sort of like Voltron, right? The two of them exist in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome as being stronger together than separately, and they both have a strength and a weakness. So Master's weakness, obviously, physically, is that he is short and wouldn't survive for very long in Barter Town, and Blaster is the opposite. He has sort of like a brain injury, doesn't he, of some sort? Yeah, he's- um, Does he Down syndrome? He has- Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He gets unmasked and yeah. He's yeah, at the end. And so basically done. you have sort of like, but he's got incredible physique and he's a great fighter. And so together these guys work in harmony. And at the end you sort of see they're, they're, they're both vulnerable, right? And they both actually care for each other. 
I feel. Yeah, it's quite sad when Max kills um, or is forced to kill Blaster in the in in Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah they feel you feel sorry for him. He's a little buddy. But I like I yeah. like how they're this unstoppable force. So that's how they're betrayed at the start, and then when they're unmasked towards the end, you see their fragility. I feel that if you teased out that concept in this film, there'd be something quite interesting there. Like, I don't feel there's any dynamic between Logan, Lerman's character. What's his name again? I can't, that's how unmemorable this movie is, is that I can't remember. Simon. Simon, right. Between Simon and Cable. I guess the difference here is they're trying to characterise Cable as being a servant to Simon reluctantly. But I think there's a version of this film where perhaps they work better in harmony. Like maybe they look after each other. It's like a buddy cop movie in some ways, except one's a digital uh, controller and other one's actually there on the ground. So mm. to me, they actually don't lean in hard enough to them being in opposition or them being close enough as a team. It's sort of like no man's land. Like Cable should be fighting Simon's control much more than he does and then perhaps they come together voluntarily at the end to win. They'd be a lot more interesting character growth, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, some sort of tension between them, right? I'm with you 100%. feels very underdeveloped. But- what you really want to talk about is the performance by... <laughs> oh, yes. So I really want to talk about Michael C. Hall's inspired performance as, what's his name? Ken Castle or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the creator of Society and Slayers and how great the scene is when he dances. <laughs> like, it, oh, wow. It's so good. So ah. just describe to our podcast listeners I love it. who may not have seen the movie what actually goes down. So, so... I mean, his his performance is very mannered throughout. He's always doing weird little things. But at the end when uh, Jerry turns up to confront Mike, he has this choreographed dance routine to the song, I think it's like Under My Skin, with like a whole bunch of like um, uh, henchmen who he's somehow controlling through his nanites or whatever who like dance along behind him uh, as if they are sort of marionettes. And Ben, let me tell you, it is magic. Yeah, I always wonder when a character, an actor, goes for those big choices as a villain. Like, is this something they always want to explore? Like, everyone wants to sort of be, you know, the cliched baddie. Who's that guy that twirls his moustache and has Muttley the dog in Wacky Races? What's his name again? Sneaking along last is that mean machine with those double-dealing do-batters, Dick Dastardly and his sidekick, Muttley. The cliched moustache-twirling villain. Like... This film is interesting because this this actor, I mean, he was fantastic, fantastic in Dexter. Like Michael C. Hall played a really interesting serial killer with nuance and who tried to live between the normal world and his serial killing real world. I think, does he then think to himself, you know what? I'm done with subtle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I want to go big. That's right. I want to wear my personality on my sleeve and- I want to be the extrovert because it's a big choice. And I just wonder what an actor thinks when they go for that. Like they, he's swinging for the fences and it makes me think, what film have you ever seen where that works? Now, there are films out there. I just can't think of them, Brian. Dude, heaps of movies. Give me an example. Okay. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Samuel L. Jackson in Django Unchained. Yep. Okay. All right. Massive performances. Huge, huge hands. Sir, I tip my hat to you. Correct. But, but they're working with... Strong material. Yes. You know, like all actors love to ham. Like Daniel Day-Lewis is a ham in everything. You know, we've, we've talked about Meryl Streep being a classic can of ham. Like, <laughs> you know, Julia and Julia. She's, oh, you know. Um, but, but I think 
I think it just depends on what they end up working with. And and for me, this sort of works because it makes the film fun and funny. But it's undoubtedly kind of a bad performance, right? Like, like uh, again, what's the term for it being both, you know, good and, like... Good and bad, like good, bad, good. Surely there's, surely there's a German word that's like twenty nine letters long for good, bad. <laughs> you know. Well, actually, what'd be interesting to try and make this film a better film? It'd be interesting, actually, if he actually puts on this persona. Imagine at the end, it's sort of revealed that this is the mask he wears himself. This is his real life avatar, where he actually puts on this sort of uh, Bond esque villain persona. Because he thinks that's the kind of character he has to be to try and, you know, be the dynamic criminal. But it turns out he's actually quite boring. Perhaps he's more like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and that he's more restrained. And that's his mask he wears in public. Oh, yeah. That would have been much more interesting. That'd be interesting, right? And, like, what if he wasn't even Michael C. Hall then? What if Michael C. Hall was just the body he got around in? Because he was a big fan of Dexter, you know. Oh, what if he was actually a kid? And he was actually, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. It turns out like a 12-year-old invented society and slayers because that would probably actually make sense, you know. It actually would and he has to actually wear the persona of an adult yeah. to actually like cut checks and, you know, start up a company and so on. And then the ending of the movie is just Jared Butler beating up a child. <laughs> Anyway. Um, any final thoughts before we move on to surrogates? No, I feel this movie's an acquired taste and I've acquired it. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to surrogates. So, Gabe, what did you like? What grinded your gears? And did it do a better version of the same concept than Gamer? It is insane, Ben, that you told me this movie was only 85 minutes long. I, I like, Seriously, I could not... <laughs> if... If you had asked me before we recorded, I would have said, it was, oh, it's a two-hour movie. Like Now, just to be really clear, like I can't emphasize this enough, podcast listeners, Gabe loves an 85-minute <laughs> film including credits. I, lo- I do Maybe like, like I a 78-minute film including credits sometimes. Like, like he actually sincerely, <laughs> deeply, really appreciates a get-in-and-get-out movie. And as an editor by profession, he's aware that some films perhaps stick around too long. Yeah. Like- yeah. Tell your good story and move on. Yeah, yeah. And for you to say that, for you to feel this felt like a much longer film, says a lot. Oh, ben, Ben, I should just very quickly defend my dumbness here. Um, number one, yes, I like a shorter movie. And yes, I work as an editor. But I should be very clear, an editor's job is not just to make things shorter. That seems to be like a, a common misconception that idiots have on Twitter. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that. Is, but No, no, totally. I know, I know you weren't, but I feel like I need to make it clear. And the second thing is I do love long movies. There are long movies that I, 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 I like, you know, like, I don't know, uh, Tarkovsky Solaris, long movie, long movie. Although if anyone's interested to watch it, I do have a 74-minute cut that I made myself. <laughs> You're like Topher Grace doing your own cuts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't actually done that. Um, I should just be very clear. I, there, is, there, is no, there is no Gabe Derrick 74-minute Solaris cut. No one wants to see that. But the point being is that basically your idea is a film should be as long as the concept deserves. Totally. Uh, yeah, okay, great, exactly. That's, that's a very nice way of putting it. But, oh, my God. This was only 85 minutes. Oh. Yeah, it's I, it's special, isn't I it? I don't know. Uh, it's it's one of those weird movies where it's like, what do you say about it? Like, Well, let's start with the concept. Do you think this okay. is the best execution of this concept compared to Gamer, this whole idea of living via surrogates? 
So, so, so the plot of this movie is what there's like a a mysterious murder that happens where a guy is killed through his robot, and Detective Robot Bruce Willis goes out to solve who who has done this because it is the the person who's been murdered is the child of the person who invented robot surrogacy. And is that right? Just, yeah, that's right. And just to be really clear, the key distinction is that. Everyone lives in a world of surrogates and they sit at home and they're often, you know, deprived of vitamin D because they don't see sunshine. They lie in some sort of pod and they live their entire life through a robot. And the idea is that the robot's a more attractive version of you. Generally, it looks similar to you, just younger with more hair, more makeup, better clothes, <laughs> etc. And they all yeah, have this kind of yeah, sheen okay. on them. They all yeah, look like Instagram yeah. filtered robots. And- Conceptually, I actually think that concept's quite good. And the idea is, of course, is that you can't get killed because if you're out and about as a robot and the robot gets killed or squashed by a car or something like that, you're safe at home. Yet Mm. somehow at the start of the film, it's revealed that a murderer managed to kill people by killing the robot that somehow then sends a signal back through the neural link and explodes their brain back at home. Mm. So suddenly the whole idea of surrogates being a, a barrier between, you know, you and the rest of the world is broken down. That's right. And Bruce Willis eventually has to abandon his robot, Bruce Willis, and go into the outside world as, uh, you know, grey-haired, goateed Bruce Willis, um, where, you know, he he is in danger because he doesn't have a robot body anymore. He could be killed, you know, like a, like a normal person. Yeah, and I always love it when a film does this, and you saw this in the Netflix uh, superhero-esque story, The Old Guard with Charlize Theron. Spoilers came out for The Old Guard. Have you seen it, Gabe? Yes, I have. Okay. So I love in a movie where essentially someone runs out of lives. I think it happens in Jumanji as well, the latest reboot of that film with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, where essentially you get to the point in the story towards the end where you've lost, you're down to one bullet or no bullets or you're down to mm. one life. Mm. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow does this, you know. Really well. He can repeat and repeat, and then at the end he can no longer, oh, shit, will he survive? Who knows? Yeah, and so to me that's just a really classical storytelling, raising the stakes trait, and I love that. And by doing it in this film, it's a really good idea. It means that basically he's out there running for the first time in ages, walking for the first time in ages, holding a gun for the first time in ages. If you're trying to shoot someone, you're doing it face-to-face, not through a interface through an avatar. I really like all those elements. And as you described it just a few minutes ago, I'm hearing that thinking, I like this idea of a movie. (laughs) Mm. But the movie we get, to me, doesn't take advantage of that. In fact, I'm going to actually give it another sort of golf clap uh, in that in some ways actually quite progressive, right? Like this was made in 2009. Let's be glass half full here. We're in an era now where people live virtually or recreate their lives and give it a, you know, literal and figurative sheen through social media. Like every photograph they post is living their hashtag best life, uh, their blessed hashtag. Uh, They apply filters to their photographs and you never know that perhaps someone's unemployed or sick or suffering depression or something like that because they represent through social media the best version of themselves, if not entirely fake persona. So in some ways, I can imagine the director actually pitching that kind of angle. Like this is where social media organically goes, right? Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. actually start creating 
physical avatars of ourselves. And this film came out in 2009, same year as James Cameron's Avatar. So there are all these elements in play. It, to me, it actually was really hitting the zeitgeist. And a great film could have really taken advantage of that sort of intersection between similar stories, Avatar, social media, and this whole idea of AI and robots developing at this rapid rate. And it just screws the pooch. It doesn't take advantage of that at all. Like yeah. the, the, the best we get is uh, Rosman Pike's character, who plays Bruce Willis's wife, having lots of makeup and big hair and everyone's sort of walking around like Ken dolls or Barbie dolls with sort of this sheen of makeup um, to really sort of emphasise that they are the perfect version of themselves. And they do things like they might sort of have sex or drink more flippantly because it's via robots, not actually in person. But that's really the extent that this film explores this idea of having an avatar. Wait, do the robots bang? I guess they must. Does that mean... Uh, that's kind of all a bit gross, but but I I agree. What you're like, I don't really care for Instagram and so on. But I just one of the barriers in this movie for me is that James Cromwell is revealed spoilers at the end to be the bad guy, I guess, or trying to shut down his creation. But yes, people you are using it sort of hedonistically or whatever. But I just don't quite get why the film takes such such an anti technology stand like it, it it just doesn't kind of make sense to me like what what is the huge drawback to this like people have become withdrawn i guess is that it like what is the oh yeah okay um i'll i'll bite yeah bite i think it's essentially like looking at the way we are now with technology by saying you start off with one ambition like facebook was about connecting people to try and track down your old uh, high school crush yeah, and, you know, share photographs with your fellow family members. And now we're in a situation where essentially it's become a portal for misinformation, disinformation and fringe extreme groups sharing their ideas in the company of others yeah, and therefore kind of endorsing um, racism or prejudice or... Uh, misleading science information. And so what was the intention in the first instance has been lost in time. Yeah, but, like, what I agree with everything you just said then, but that's not what surrogates is about. The equivalent for surrogates, I guess, would be people airbrushing their pictures too much. And it's like, who gives a shit? I don't care if people want to, you know, touch up their Instagram pictures, whatever. Like, do that. Doesn't hurt anyone. Probably makes you feel good about yourself, maybe. I don't give a shit. Yeah, but look at Rosamund Pike's character, right? They've lost their child in the movie. Before the movie starts, right. the background is they've lost their child. Right. She's not grieving. She's basically decided to try and escape her depression by living through this more exotic robot version of herself and hanging out with these, quote, cool, unquote, people. <laughs> yeah, they're so lame. <laughs> <laughs> they are. And essentially Bruce Willis is saying, honey, I love you as you are, not as this sort of Barbie doll robot and you're actually not in touch with your emotions and actually processing your grief. And therefore, everyone in society is in some ways doing the same thing. They're not actually being authentic. So, but that's garbage. Well, I actually... Like, she, oh, she's a gloomy Gus. She's got a dead kid. That's fucking tragedy. But that's her problem there. Like, you don't go, well, maybe we should stop robot surrogacy for everyone because, 
you know, she is unable to come to terms with a hot traumatic event. Well, I think Bruce Willis' like, idea is that it's not just her. He's looking around him at everyone, including, you know, his boss, people he sort of arrests and thinking people are acting on their vices and the worst version of themselves and this isn't good for society. Therefore, let's sort of like, you know, have a digital apocalypse knock all these robots out and people can actually be more authentic and truthful and we'll have a more cohesive functioning society. Yes, they should. We can go to the park again and sit in cafes again, you know. And, and sip real coffee, that's yeah, right. Look, and human, I don't human disagree can- with the sentiment. Like if you sort of burnt down social media tomorrow, for example, many would say that'd be a good thing because we get away from this idea of, you know, an artificial persona of ourselves or... Uh, fringe groups that are like sharing their crazy and dangerous ideas. And so I can understand the motivation of Bruce Willis's character. Um, and I also understand the motivation of the inventor, James Cromwell, seeing his invention, which was originally started, I think, to help people who had been paralyzed like him walk again, suddenly becoming used to create like sex robots and all sorts of things. So I can sort of see the logic and the motivation behind the characters. I just don't think it's executed very well. I think it's executed too simplistically. No, yeah. yeah, totally. I think yeah. I think that's it. That's I think that's the problem I had with it. Similar to Gamer, that there is good ideas there, or there would be something interesting there. It's just yeah, not not willing to really engage with those. You know, maybe they just didn't have space for that in the eighty-five minutes the movie went. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about this uh, ironic comparison between John, James Cromwell's character in Minority Report? And his character here in Surrogates. Wait, he's not in Minority Report. Are you thinking of um, uh, Max von Sydow? Oh, it's like that Sinbad movie. I am. <laughs> in your head, there was like a whole Minority Report, which is just Cromwell. Um, yeah. That's the Mandela effect there. Because Minority Report is basically about someone who invents something, but it's being curbed by society with their rules. And he essentially has to basically take a legal action to try and. Uh, make his invention realise itself to its fullest. And this film's the opposite, right? Mm. He wants to kneecap it because he doesn't like the way it's unfolded. What year did Minority Report come out? Because that's got a dead son plot too. 2002? That's got a Tom Cruise feeling sad about his... Feeling sad about his dead son. Jeez, that's a that's a way to describe it. Just throw it away like that. Um, Actually, but that film, for example, is a really good example of how death can work in motivating the characters. Like mm. I find that film, Minority Report, really emotional and there's two elements to it. I, mm. The way he loses his son to me is just so tragically realistic. Like I can see that happening to me. I, before I even had kids, I could empathise with that situation where you turn away for just two seconds and what he's doing is like it's not like, you know, he's playing his iPhone or whatever. He's actually playing with his kid and he's really engaged with his kid and then just by turning away as part of a game, he loses his kid forever and his wife blames him for losing his kid even though she doesn't blame him, even though he feels like she's blaming him, etc. And that therefore motivates everything that happens in the movie. Look how well that works compared to surrogates. Like it doesn't explore that in nowhere near as much detail and with that same consequence as to how it affects the character's actions other than basically he pulls the plug at the end. Uh, exactly. I would have forgotten that there is a dead son plot in surrogates if you hadn't reminded me like you know like 
certainly as far as Dead Sun plots go, it doesn't, it, yeah, it doesn't touch Minority Report. Stargate, great Dead Sun plot. Pet Cemetery, maybe one of the best Dead Sun plots there are. You know, if you're going to do Dead Sun, you, you, you're up against, you know, some heavy hitters. So you should start a uh, letterbox sort of, you know, subgenre or IMDb subgenre of Dead Sun's motivating characters. That's right. Uh, ordinary people. Let's begin there, you know. Um, uh, totally. Dead Sun plot. Why not? <laughs> you know, what do you think, though, again, about the best execution of this concept? Because to me, Gamer is set in the not-too-distant future. It sort of ties into play- PlayStation and Xbox mentality now uh, and social media's idea of having avatars and living vicariously through the best version of yourself, whereas it is hard to take surrogates seriously, isn't it, with those goofy robots? Oh, man. Like Bruce Willis's – we joked about it earlier, but Bruce Willis's look in this movie, <laughs> I can't believe that's what they settled on or decided on. It's just weird. Like for a movie about being able to be your perfect self in robot form, you know, it makes sense with Rosamund Pike, but is this the look he chose? Like it's just – so strange. But here's the other thing. There's a bunch of people using robots who don't look like them whatsoever. So you can look like anyone, but also Bruce Willis has a robot that looks like Bruce Willis. So it's like- And Rada Mitchell's look like Rada Mitchell yeah. and Rosson Pikes look like Rosson Pikes and his boss looks like his boss. Yeah. So it's like I wish it had just picked something. Like in a world where you can be anyone, they actually- let you be anyone, but it's like in a world where you can be anyone, you'll just be a version of yourself with hair. And at least Gamer does that thing where it's like, you know, this disgusting bloke, sweaty guy can be Amber Valletta. You know what I mean? Like, whereas this is just not, it doesn't grab that premise and run with it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It feels like Jonathan Moscow, the director, who did Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, and so has some experience with robots and so on, is trying to tap into, I guess, somewhere between now and Terminator. Uh, but in this case, the robots don't turn bad and turn against humanity. They are very much just an extension of you. But it feels, I don't know, like a 1960s uh, short story or a Black Mirror episode where you've got this film that has a huge budget and then these robots where you just pull their skin off and they have those kind of, you know, cliched bug bug eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, robot like, face. Do you know what I mean? Like it actually feels kind of cheap in that way. Um, the complexity of the robots the under the real flesh, like the actual Terminator played by Arnold Schwarzenegger in all those Terminator movies, you know, is actually more interesting and looks more interesting than these movies. This looks like something like from a – a TV series. Like it doesn't look sophisticated. Um, again, I always keep thinking back to everyone dressed like they're in the 1980s or dressed uh, dressed like uh, Ken and Barbie characters from a, a toy collection. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I guess that's to me almost a metaphor for the movie. It looks and smells and has a sheen to it that looks polished, you know, for a sort of budget of around $80 million, $100 million. But there's nothing substantive behind it. Yeah, I think you're 100% on the money there. All right. Well, let's move on then. Uh, Let's look at some of the behind the scenes. So did you hear about Gerard Butler's reaction to the first cut? 
No. What did Jerry have to say? He disliked Gamer so much, he wanted to take his name off the credits. Ooh. Yep. Really? Wow. Um, I People would still know it's him, though, because he's in the movie. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like if you directed it, you go, oh, I'll take Alan Smithy, and people might not know. He's still in the movie, Jerry. Like, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, another bit of a little factoid for you. Uh, when do you think the film was set? Oh, uh, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> 2034. Okay. Uh, all right, I'll jump across to a bit of trivia for surrogates. Um, <laughs> did you hear about Bruce Willis? having to have his lines recorded by a sound-alike voiceover actor. Oh, really? Was he unhappy also with the final result? Yeah. Yeah, well. Exactly. So so uncooperative, they brought him back to do a voiceover. Now, for listeners, there's this tradition in Hollywood history. But, Gabe, I'll throw it to you as the editor extraordinaire. Perhaps give a bit of a summary as to how editing has controversially been used in the past when it relates to voiceover. I'm thinking of basically Blade Runner and instances where patchwork is required. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes when you're in the cut, you need to come up with ideas to fill story gaps or plot holes or, you know, you're changing the movie, you're writing it for the third time as it was. And, yeah, I mean, I guess Blade Runner's a poor example of not a, it's a good example of a poor execution that they recorded a whole bunch of voiceover lines and Harrison Ford didn't want to do it and, you know, his performance there is, uh, let's say, unco- you can hear the uncooperativeness, but he actually, he actually did it. I guess here <laughs> Bruce Willis refusing to do it. I mean, look, ADR is very common in movies, you know, like like after they shoot a, shoot a film, there's tons and tons of reasons why you want to do ADR. Um, Which stands for automatic dialogue replacement. Additional? Additional dialogue reporting? Oh, sorry. Me bad. Sam is going to be so unimpressed, aren't you, Sam? (laughs) Sam, drop comment or fat beats here. (laughs) Killian. G'day, Ben. G'day, Gabe. ADR actually stands for automated dialogue replacement, which is a little bit of a misnomer because there's nothing automated about it. It's a pretty fucking complicated process of re-recording the actors, multiple takes, often patching different takes together, then making them fucking try and match in with the production dialogue. Uh, There's nothing automated behind it, about it. A lot of the time it sticks out like dog's balls and um, it's a fucking nightmare. Killian Murphy. Um, um, but, but I would have imagined contractually Bruce Willis would have had to have done ADR, like, like it's put in contracts that actors will have to do, uh, have to be available for some certain amount of, you know, ADR. So for him not to want to. I know. That's pretty funny. Remarkable. Um, okay. Let's move along to casting Woodashaw Kudders. Look, nothing to report here. Uh, these films don't have a lot of information online. Uh, they're not really, you know. Uh, followed by many people with a, there's not a huge cult fan base. And so I couldn't find any sort of, you know, interesting details here. So let's move on to Spot the Aussie. Uh, Gamer, did you spot any Aussies, mate? Um, 
I didn't, did you? No, the only slight cheeky extension is I think, isn't Zoe Bell in this one? She is. Though, who's a New Zealander, the stunt woman uh, made famous by. Okay, so we. Okay. Uh, Quentin Tarantino? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So pretty cheeky. But, Gabe, who was the Aussie in Surrogates? Drum roll. Rada. Rada Mitchell. Yep. Um, we'll get to her in the awards because I've got a lot of time for Rada Mitchell. I think she's actually pretty good in this movie. Big fan of Rada. Big fan of Rada. Yeah. So am I. Well, let's 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 park talking about Rada till then, hey. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, let's give. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and the only other thing to mention is under marketing methodology, madness, and missteps. Apparently, Gamer actually had a few different names. It was actually originally called Game, then it was called Citizen <laughs> Game, and then when it came to the marketing post production, they changed it to Gamer, which to me I think is actually not as interesting as something like Citizen Game or. Another title entirely. I think Gamer is a little bit. Con- I mean, to me, it doesn't actually refer to <laughs> another title entirely. Uh, that's that's what I would have gone for, man. <laughs> Just another title entirely. All right, let's jump to the box office. All right, so let's start with that one, Gabe. Who was the box office champ? Surely, Surrogates made more money. Yeah, it did. Surrogates was uh, made for eighty million dollars. It did thirty-eight and a half million dollars domestically in the states plus $84 million internationally for a grand total of $122.5 million. Sounds like a lot. Of a budget of $80 million, it's not very good at all. That'd be considered a failure, fair to say. Fair to say. But not as much as a of a bomb, unfortunately, as Gamer, which made for $50 million, did only $20.5 million in the US, plus $20 million internationally for a grand total of $41 million off a 50 budget. Jeepers. Yeah. Poor Jerry. Yeah, poor Jerry indeed. Uh, do you think the first film, Gamer, helped or hindered the box office of surrogates? No, I don't I don't really think people would have uh, had that in their mind, do you? No, I don't think enough people saw these films to then have the other choices influenced at all. I think both films just slip under the radar. It's it's interesting that you said Avatar came out the same year as this. <laughs> Maybe we should have talked about Avatar in one of these. Would have Avatar have, you know, eaten the lunch of these, both these movies? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> or tri- triplet? Twi- is it, what's a, a twin when there's three is triplet? Is that right? Yeah, why don't we think of Avatar? That seems like the most obvious twin movie. Ah, oh. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, well, very clever, Gabe. Someone out there's got like a triplet podcast, <laughs> and they're doing that right now. <laughs> All right, let's get to Rotten Tomatoes. So, which one do you think wowed the critics, Gabe? Gamer or Surrogates? Well, if I had to guess, which one wowed the critics? I feel like Surrogates probably got marginally. It's hard to say better reviews, but yeah, tell me, Ben. It kind of depends on expectations, doesn't it? Like which film <laughs> okay, had yeah. higher expectations? Uh, Gamer scored thirty percent with the critics. Versus Rotten Tomatoes on 37%. All right, let's go to the audience. Who do you think was uh, throwing their popcorn with delight more? Uh, was it the fans of Gamer or the audience in Surrogates? I, I kind of hope there's a few people like me who enjoy Gamer for what it has. So I'm hoping Gamer has a slightly better audience score. 1% more, Gabe. 39%. Oh, yes. Audience score for Gamer versus 38% for Surrogates. So these films- I am at 1%. Had a shocker. I went, I went and voted yesterday. 
All right, let's get to the awards. Let's do the awards. I can't recall if we're doing any sort of, uh, you know, sort of like a theme song or anything, are we? You say this every time, Ben. You can never recall if there's music here. No, no. Every time. <laughs> but the question is, do we actually add lyrics to it? No, no. It's just like a, okay. it's just like a fanfare. Okay, all right. Let's go with the first one, best title. They're both horrible titles. Yeah, surrogate sounds like it's a indie drama about, you know, driving across the country like Juno to get a surrogate. Uh, totally. And, That's what I thought. Yeah, and Gamer is just so generic. It could refer to any computer game-related film of any sort. So yeah, I th- I think yeah, we call that a bad. dead rubber. Both are bad. Because, I mean, surrogates, you wouldn't know – from that title that – and look, the title doesn't have to be like, oh, it's definitely about like robot people, but it's just not evocative and totally your mind goes to, yeah, like a a movie starring Bernie Feldstein or whatever about, <laughs> you know. No, it's like a Tony – You nailed Tony it. Tony Collette and Paul Giamatti driving from New York to California uh, and having fights the whole way and they finally meet the surrogate who has issues and they have to kind of be like parental-like figures, the young surrogate – living in LA at the same time that Paul Giamatti has a fair, kisses her after a few drinks. I can see the whole film unfolding, can't you? Wait, wait. Paul Giamatti kisses the young woman who has a child she doesn't – has a child – oh, wait. So I'm so stupid. What's a, a surrogate is where someone else carries your child for you, right? Exactly. Okay, so it's not like they're just adopting a baby. They're, they're driving the – the young woman who's carrying their baby. That's right. They've done IVF and they're driving across country because perhaps the planes are down because of bushfire smoke. Wow. And they can't land. You've really thought about this. (laughs) (laughs) This is just coming off top of my head, but I can just see this being a typical indie Sundance movie and not even in a bad way. No, no, no. It'll be like a twee soundtrack as well, you know. And maybe it's like contemporary in the sense that they've both got, got a Tesla and there's been like the bushfires have like perhaps killed a few of the you know, uh, power poles nearby and so they have to sort of stop off more regularly than they'd like because they can't drive in a full charge because the Tesla yep, stations yep. are down. So stay in dinky hotels and have wacky encounters. What do you think? Yep. And and the young woman is Hispanic perhaps. Yeah. And there's a whole perhaps sort of you know. story there and that she's been oppressed in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I like it. All right, moving on. Best poster. Can you describe to our audience what each of these posters look like. Uh, and if the audience has the right app on their phone, you can see both posters compared side by side in the album artwork for this app. So we just go off the the first default poster from the landing page of these films on IMDb. So Exactly. For surrogates, it is Bruce Willis and he's bald and he's walking down the street. <laughs> So evocative. <laughs> it's it, it's not. Oh, there's some there's some distant helicopters and some posters, but he's looking over his shoulder at something off screen. It is a garbage poster. Is this one of the worst posters we've seen besides the flight flight plan poster? In the sense, I think of Drop Zone, flight plan, and this one, where there is no sense about the concept or the story or the character. In any way in the poster at all. It's weird. I'm surprised they didn't give him even just a gun. Can I pitch you a better poster than this before we get to the game of poster? Yeah, I bet, I, I bet you it's can. It's Bruce Willis 
And it's the same sort of floating head. So you lean into this idea where marketing execs love having huge heads of the lead actor so the audience can walk past the cinema and go, oh, Bruce Willis, I know him. He's in movies. I like him. I'll see that movie. Take my money. But what you do is you do his face split in half, one with his wig and his modern sheeny look, the robot look, and the other half with the grizzly look with his beard. Just something more interesting like that so you get this idea that there's a, as Michael Mann would say, a duality to his character. Nice, nice. Perhaps even some of the skin on his robot face could be peeling off a bit so that we see that. And we can see, yes. See some Roboto there. Um, That gives you the best of both worlds. You get to see Robot. You get to see that it's sort of one of the same character, flip sides of the same coin, and you get to see Bruce Willis's face, which the marketing executives would love. Well, it's interesting that's what you suggest because the poster for Gamer is a giant picture of Jerry Butler's face and it's sort of coming apart and behind it you can see a small boy. So the idea being that essentially that boy is controlling him. Look, Yeah, inside of Jerry Butler there is a child. <laughs> I'm thinking up what you're putting down. Uh, well, no, it could be much worse if it was the other way around. Inside the child is Jerry Butler. Let's get this podcast doesn't endorse any of Gabe Dowry's comments at all. No, of course I'm not endorsing that. I'm saying that would be much, much worse. <laughs> so please describe, well, having described that poster, which one's your preferred? I assume it's Gamer, right? I mean, I guess so. Again, I don't really think that tells you much about what it is or, you know, it's not a brilliant piece of design. It doesn't really tell you what the movie is, but at least it's a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I think Gamer gets it by default, but they're not great posters. Okay. All right. Yeah. Moving on to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who jumped into the Hollywood big time with these films, starting with Gamer? I mean, did anyone here? I'd say Logan Lerman. He was only about 16 or so when the film was made. I don't think he had a a ton of credits, so he could be one. Okay. Uh, Uh, I mean, Neverdean Taylor, they got 30 more million dollars for this movie. Oh, no, much more than that. If this was made before Crank 2 and after Crank 1, I mean, this is a $38 million step up for them. Yeah, I suppose so. All right. How about surrogates then? Uh, I mean, again, is anyone here? I don't getting a. I don't think so. No one really jumped out to me, so I reckon that's actually null and void. So I think Neville Dean Taylor, the directors of Gamer, get it. Okay, let's give it to them. All right, moving on to the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, Gamer. All right, I had a couple of nominees here. All right, John Lee. Gizmo is in this film playing a character called Frick. Mate, his name is John Leguizamo. Come on. Oh, Leguizamo, is it? Oh, sorry. Jesus. And, and Zoe Bell. I had those two for Gamer. How about you? Now I don't know how to... You've put me in a real tizzy here, Ben. John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo. <laughs> so basically neither one of us pronounced it correctly in the first instance. I love John Leguizamo. He's really wasted in Gamer. Um, totally wasted. Uh, I, it's... I have no idea why he's there. I'm surprised Neverdean Taylor didn't plug in like Corey Feldman or something in that role, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, sorry, what was the question? I, I was distracted by it. Leguizamo. And Zoe Bell. So any other nominees? Oh, uh, wait. For, what is this award? <laughs> Jesus. We we need a cue, a, a sound cue for when Gabe forgets. 
<laughs> What's going on? What sort of sound cue would you like? I don't know. Uh, probably this one. You know, I've had more rewarding friendships than this one. Although I do get to keep telling the same jokes. <laughs> nice. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Oh, <laughs> uh, Sam, you read his mind. Yep. Uh, look, Zoe Bell, I didn't even recognise in the film until I saw the credits. So she'd count as a blink and you'll miss them. Mm-hmm. Surrogates, again, uh, no one seemed to jump out as being, you know, a big actor in a small role or before they were famous. So I've got no one for that one. Uh, yep, okay. I'm thinking that uh, I'm thinking that Zoe Bell or Johnny Boy gets it. Your choice. Okay, give it to give it to Zoe Bell. All right, Bell Bird, you pick up your blinking miss them award uh, from us anytime that's convenient to you, and please don't hurt us. All right. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Still Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. Gabe, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Mm. Well, it, we should say that both of these movies actually have pretty good casts, right? Oh, I'd say that the Surrogates cast is better than the Gamer cast, but they're okay, yeah. I mean- No, I mean, look, look for, for what Gamer is- you know, Jared Butler. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Michael C. Hall, Kira Sedgwick. Kira Sedgwick. Terry Crews, Logan Lerman. I mean, Ludacris sucks, but, yeah. but you know, like even, um, uh, what's his name? Keith David. Fucking the awesome Keith David turns up as a character named Agent Keith <laughs> for a scene. You know, so like even in that role, which is a small role, they still get someone who's really great. Well, I had Kaya uh, Sedgwick for... Uh uh, playing Gina Parker-Smith in Gamer. Small role, um, but she's a nominee. And I had Roseman Pike playing Maggie in Surrogates. Who are your yeah, nominees? Rose- Roseman Pike is actually better than the better than the film. Yeah, I agree. All right. This was this was at that period where Roseman Pike just deserved better. Yeah, totally. Um, All right, I'm, I'm going to give it to her. Okay. This is not the Chewing the Scenery Award, right? Oh, no, that's coming up, my friend. Save then that. let's give it to Roseman Pike's actually quite... Good performance in an otherwise turkey town. <laughs> All right, moving on to the Mickey Rourke Award. Named in honour of our mate, the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Gabe, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? So starting with Gamer, I had Amber Valletta who played Angie. I'm not really sure what happened to her, but I had her down. How about you? She's, she's rich and just gave it up. Uh... Yeah, I mean, the directors, Neverdean Taylor. Well, they have kicked on. They kind of broke up shortly after this to go their own way. Have they broken up? Yeah, I think uh, Taylor did Mum and Dad or Mom and Dad by himself. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Surrogates, I had the director, Jonathan Mosto. Like, he's got an interesting career. Like, for our listeners who don't know who this guy is, it's fascinating. I'd love to sort of know behind closed doors what went down because he hasn't got that many credits to his name. He's uh, he's written six different stories. He's directed 12 times. He does Breakdown in 1997 with Kurt Russell, which does pretty well, you know, in terms of being a sort of in-between film between mainstream oh, and indie. It's great. Yeah. That's a really good movie. He then does... U571, which is a World War II movie set in a submarine or a U-boat. Uh, it's got actors like Matthew McConaughey, Bill Paxton, Harvey Keitel, Bon John Jovi. 
Um, oh, yeah. So, oh, that was the movie that famously attributed the stealing of the Enigma machine to the Americans. Did it? Oh. Yeah, and people were like, the Brits were like up in arms. They were like, fuck this shit. <laughs> fuck you. So he then does, three years later, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. At the time, that was a huge deal, wasn't it? Like 12 years after T2, the Terminator franchise hadn't been soured at this point. Everyone was hungry for the next movie. James Cameron wasn't going to make it. Uh, it was only 12 years after, so it was like a long time but not too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to go from breakdown U571 and then go T3, like that was a huge step up for him mm-hmm. and I would have thought it would have made him a lot of money. And then after that he does a film called Them in 2007 for TV or straight to video, then Surrogates, and then since then all he's done is one episode of The Last Ship, the TV show, and a movie called The Hunter's Prayer in 2017 um, starring uh, our fellow Aussie boy, uh, Sam Worthington. Yeah, right. I have not seen that. It's a really strange filmography. Um, that that film, Them, may well have been a TV pilot for a series that didn't get picked up. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah, it's strange. I mean, I think you're right. Surrogates maybe did some um, long-term damage or maybe he just got burnt out. Maybe he made this movie and it was a miserable experience and he just thought, stuff it, like... You know, yeah. Look, just- if that's the case, let's say you make your five, ten million dollars between all these films, you can actually live modestly in Hollywood and retire, and you're not making TV commercials, and you're just happy to say, you know what, I'm done. I really respect that. If that's the case. Um, it's just such a interesting career trajectory to start with. Breakdown, scream up to T3, and then crash down on the side, and then just vanish, like. It fascinates me. Like, I love to know the behind-the-scenes story. Yeah. Well, I guess also I feel like Bruce Willis could be nominated for this because Surrogates is like the very top of his tip then down into just tons and tons of DTV movies because before this he wasn't cranking them out to the extent that he is now. But after Surrogates, um, you know, he's still he's still in big movies like Red but he starts doing, you know, Catch 44, The Cold Light of Day, um, um, Fire with Fire. And in between these DTV movies, he's still he's still doing the occasional good film, Moonrise Kingdom and Looper, but it is really the beginning of just starting to appear in, um, you know, that famous Bruce Willis will do any movie for a million bucks a day phase. All right, let's do a little segue here because I'm dying to hear your take on the last 10 years of Bruce Willis's career. And we just touched on it for a tiny bit when we did the podcast, The Sixth Sense versus Stir of Echoes. Why do you think he has taken this career turn? Is it as simple as once another house or another Tesla and it's just an easy way to turn up on set for three days and make $2 million? Yeah. Is, is it something else? Like his kids are grown up. He divorced Emmy Moore a long time ago. Um, unless he sort of like wastes his money away Johnny Depp style on like bad investments or like Nicolas Cage buying rare dinosaur fossil eggs and so on or gambling. Like, Hell yeah. What do you think has happened behind the scenes to lead to this just huge, overwhelming 
bucket load of straight-to-video-on-demand movies where he turns up for a short scene and implicitly, I guess, gets paid a lot of money for a little work. I, I think people have this idea that all actors are like Daniel Day-Lewis and fiercely protective of their sort of legacy and will only do like, should only do like one movie every four years and it better be dang good. And they're like, why, you know, like Robert De Niro, for instance, is kind of similar. Like they're like, why is he just cashing in on this trash and stuff? And it's probably like, they don't give a fuck. Like they were in... Bruce Willis was in, you know, was in Die Hard. He was in Pulp Fiction. He was in Sixth Sense. He'd been in some massively iconic films and he probably just wants to make a bunch of money. Like why should Bruce Willis not be in these movies for a million bucks a day? Well, I guess the issue is how much money do you need? Is it a situation where essentially you look at it, the offer and go, it's $2 million, it's three days of work, I don't even have to really sort of act as a dramatically different character. I can just deliver lines as people expect, as my diehard character, um, why not? I mean, there's movies that he's in that are like there's movies where the 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 double playing him on shots that are behind his head is so obvious, you know, where they where they've obviously only had him for you know ten hours to shoot you know uh, seven scenes, and they're like, don't worry, just shoot his face, and we'll get like his stand-in for every shot behind his back, and Frank Grillo can just act against the stand-in for the you know, the reverses. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's like he – I don't know how much money Bruce Willis has. You know, how much money does Bruce Willis have? And is 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 enough ever enough? Look, Bruce Willis probably lives a very lavish lifestyle to which he has become accustomed. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, maybe it's just a case of – it's like, like many other millionaires out there. Some people do it because they love the work like Bill Gates and they end up sort of not actually caring about the money as such and give it away or fly economy class – and others just, you know, you, you can't have enough. And that's a pretty common sentiment for most people, whether you're a millionaire or not. Um, it's just interesting. And I guess, I don't know, I guess for the true believers out there, it upsets them that, you know, the legacy might sort of be tarnished. But like you said, for many of these actors, like their legacy is their filmography for the, their career for the first 30 years. And it's no big deal. Like, you know, as long as they keep making some good films, who cares if they make some bad films? Yeah, like, I don't know. I think, yeah, people will just hold them to some sort of, you know, artistic standard that who gives a shit? Like, like should he just not be in movies? Like, is that better? Is that what we're suggesting? That yeah, good point. To protect the, the legacy of Die Hard 1, he should quietly disappear. And maybe that's what, maybe that is the answer, you know? But fuck, like, who knows? Well, Just do what you want. Let's tie a bow on this award, the Mickey Rourke Award. We've got... Amber Valletta up against director Jonathan Mosto. I'm thinking uh, Johnny Boy is our winner here. Um, play that sound because I've forgotten what the award is. So, <laughs> yeah, give it to, to whomever you like. <laughs> All right, moving on. The winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front or behind the camera, and was it their career high? Oof. Um. Did anyone? Well, I Who've- I reckon for gamer you could actually say that Nelva Dean and Taylor, the directors, uh, you know, they didn't they made what they wanted to make. They wrote it. They directed it. Um, they broke up. Well, yeah, but they you, at this point in time, you could say that it was their second film, fifty million dollar budget. That's pretty good, <laughs> mate. I'm searching here. Like, okay, uh, surrogates. I had Rosamund Pike again because I just think she's great in everything and she lifts everything. So I had her. But 
It's fair to say that no one came out particularly well in either of these movies. Yeah, I, I feel like we can't give All right. this award to someone off these two twins. Not applicable. Moving on. Best Dialogue Award. What's what's your favourite quote, if anything? Um, I I guess it's not dialogue, but I do like it when Terry Crews as Hackman in Gamer sings the I've got no strings bit. <laughs> I've got no strings, so I have fun. I'm not tied up to anyone. They've got strings, but you can see. There are no strings on me. There are no strings on me. Doesn't Ultron in the Age of Ultron sing that as well? Oh, really? I don't know. I think so. Is that... I'm pretty sure someone can confirm that for us. I had strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings on me. Uh, but yeah, I like I like that. I think it's, is it from Pinocchio? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, look, that another great reference to a film about you know a puppet coming alive, and the, Pinocchio is the better execution of that. Uh, uh, or AI, artificial intelligence, with that little our boy uh, Haley Joel Osman. Um, I'm not endorsing this line of dialogue, but it made me laugh in a kind of so stupid it's good way. Ken Castle, good name. Uh, Michael C. Hall says, uh, "I hope one day to have the opportunity to breach your firewall, Miss Parker Smith," which is, <laughs> which is so um, crass. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And look, there's a bunch of examples of stuff like stuff like stuff like that in this film. So wow, okay. Any uh, favorite quotes from surrogates? No. All right. Well, uh, dealer's choice, my friend. Uh, I didn't have any nominees at all. I was just uh, scratching my head. So no, no. I'll, I'll take the the terribleness of like gamer can have this, you know. Um. All right, Neville and Taylor. We hope to see you reunited at the next uh, Twin Movies podcast virtual ceremony. Let's kick on to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Oh, yeah. Oh, here we are. Okay, roll up your sleeves, Gabe. Let's get, uh, I was going to say, let's get excited. Uh, yeah. Gamer. Oh, okay. Who have we got? I mean, Michael C. Hall we've talked about, right? Oh, not enough. Let, I think you need to explain just how big he is. I mean. He's huge. There is a lot going He's on. Huge. He's huge. But. But, okay, Terry Crews is doing some mega acting in this oh, movie as well. Totally. And and I'm there for it. I'm, I'm here for Terry Crews' mega acting. So is the sound designer adding all those cracks to his neck as he rolls his <laughs> yeah, neck all totally. the time. Like there's a <laughs> so lot of good. neck rolling going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and he plays it, he plays it well. Um, but By the way, Milo- can I ask you something first of all? Oh, yeah, okay. I'm okay. a bit confused. So these are real people, right? Y- yes. And they're prisoners that have gone to jail but it seems that Terry Crews has a scar on his neck as if to imply he's been decapitated in the past, which obviously is impossible. What? No. Well, what's that scar just- doing all around his neck? Was he, what do they call it? If you're you grouted or you're, what's that expression where they get a what? Oh, like garroted. Garroted, yeah. 
like the like in a spy movie. What is where it? Like in the car. Mexican necktie or something. Exactly. Um, uh, I, I just assumed that at some point someone had slashed his throat, but he had survived, thereby making him a super badass. Okay. Um, but I have to say, my vote to win this award is Milo. Milo? Milo Ventimiglia. Who's he play? He plays Rick Rape. In which movie? Gamer. I can't even remember this. So he plays the guy. He plays the guy who picks up Amber Valletta and does like the huge he takes her back to his place and he like slaps her ass a bunch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, so the character is disgustingly named Rick Rape. And he is just absolutely hamming it up, doing all these big faces. Disgusting big faces. Yeah. Um, Milo Milo Ventimiglia was uh, that actor from the f- from the show Heroes. He played Stallone's he played Stallone's son in the later Rocky movies, um, and he's in a very popular TV show called This Is Us. I would guess that he probably would prefer people maybe not to remember <laughs> this performance, but. Too bad, mate. You get an award for it. It is so OTT and so hammy. Could you possibly give it to him over Michael C. Hall? I mean, I don't know. Can they share it, perhaps? Okay, they could. They could share it. They're both. They're both. They're you know. They're both essaying. Um, you know, different parts of the mega acting phenom. How about in surrogates? Any potential nominees there? Uh, Ving Rhames, maybe he's he's doing some things. So. We haven't actually mentioned it all so far that Ving Rhames actually appears in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Like, As the prophet. So the prophet. in the movie, if you haven't seen it already, he's playing a character who is essentially a freedom fighter for a world of no robots. He's like yeah, he's yeah. like a, uh, what, I guess someone who's fighting for climate change or he's portrayed as being a, a good person, not like an anti-vaxxer. He's portrayed as being... Someone who's fighting the good fight, and then the irony is revealed. Spoilers that he actually is a robot, a puppet of James Cromwell's character, which is kind of like the ultimate irony because you know the guy fighting against robots is actually a tool in the process and a robot himself. But mm. it's kind of amazing he's actually in this movie. Like he's barely in this movie. Ah, uh, he has two or three scenes, doesn't he? You know, he 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 extols the virtues of unrobot. You know, yeah. Uh, living on a, I don't know, it's probably a bit probo now. A reservation they call them, where people who don't want to be robots live. Um, it's basically like referring to the Byron Bay of vaccination. <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, but yeah, like he has dreads. You know, he has his, his hair is doing a lot of the acting for him. A lot of big hair um, acting. Look, um, I'll leave it to you to hand nominee. Oh, uh, look, look, we're gonna give it to Michael C. Hall and Milo Milo joint winners because there is no substitute for what they are doing, you know. Excellent. All right, let's move on then to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the excellent actor with so many credits on IMDb. He played Ned Ryerson, the insurance salesman from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? Well, are we starting with Gamer? Yep. Well, I mean, there's the people we've already mentioned, but I'd like to give it or I'd like to nominate rather um, someone who I brought up earlier, which is Keith David. Yes. Who plays Agent Keith. (laughs) So Uh, I I love that he's called Agent Keith. Like it's so clearly a joke because 
Norman agent's referred to by their surname, their last name. And to call him Agent Keith, it's just like the filmmaker's going, we love this guy, we want to squeeze him into the movie in some capacity, and if someone sees him like Gabe Dowrick in Australia, they'll recognise him. So yep. tongue-in-cheek, let's yep. call him Agent Keith. Yeah. Yep. Um, Keith David is an actor who was in um, They Live and The Thing and you'd absolutely recognise him. You know, like I think on IMDb he's got more than 300 credits. Like he is... And, every, and he's great. Like every time he turns up, you know, you're like, hey, it is that guy. I love that guy. Um, so he's my he's my nominee. Weirdly as well, just because it might not ever get brung up again, there's also an actor named David Keith. Who's David Keith? That sounds familiar. So, Dave, so David Keith is, <laughs> he's, he's a white guy um, who you would know from movies such as An Officer and a Gentleman, U571, star, uh, directed by Jonathan Mostow, and a bunch of other things, Firestarter and, you know. Um, anyway, it's just funny that there's like a, a a great actor named Keith David and then his white reverse world counterpart, David Keith. Who works for the other director. So if these two guys meet in real yeah, life, what right. will happen? The world will explode. Oh, who knows? Or they'll just make, a, make, make out. Look, I sort of feel like you're already on the uh, Keith David, David Keith bandwagon and it's hard to try and steal the award from them. But anyone in surrogates? Well, no, no, like, well, I'd say like maybe Michael Cudlitz. And who does he play and what's he famous for? Uh, Well, he's one of those actors. He plays a character named Colonel Brendan. (laughs) Um, I'm Colonel Brendan. Um, but he's a agent Keith and Colonel Brendan. Yeah, that's right. So you, he, he, he's one of those blokes. He was in The Walking Dead for a couple of years until he got like his head bashed in. Um, he was in Gross Point Blank. He's one of those guys, you know, who he's almost the very definition of this award. Keith David might actually be too well known for this, whereas this guy is definitely one of those guys who you're like. Oh, I swear I've seen that guy somewhere. I've seen him in stuff. He's, like, been in every single TV, like, literally every single TV show. Oh, for our podcast listeners, he actually has ginger hair, but it's kind of, like, uh, dyed to be more ginger. And he played Abraham in The Walking Dead. Yeah. You know, but- Yeah, I I agree. I think Keith David's almost too famous. So I reckon he could be the the award winner. Okay, well, let's give it to Michael Cudlitz because I feel like it's unlikely he might get this award- Again, and I'd like to, you know, nice. give it to him. Keith David's award is a long and phenomenally awesome career. <laughs> like, Unless perhaps he might be up for an award for the next ooh, award, which is okay. the Delroy Linda Award for Great Actors Who Aren't Cast Often Enough. So, All right. gamer, any names jump out? Michael C. Hall? Well, would you like to see more Michael C. Hall? I'd like to see Michael C. Hall doing... Less extreme acting. <laughs> uh, right. Okay, fair enough. A little little bit of underplay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, no one really jumps out. I mean, I've always liked Kara Sedgwick. Uh, I'm always surprised that she's not in more. But no one else really jumped out. I guess your man before, uh, Johnny yeah. Leguizamo. John Leguizamo. Yeah. You know, actually, I always think- John, he's in heaps. He's in heaps. He's great. Okay. Uh, how, about, how about you then? Um, well, okay. What about what about in surrogates? Rada? Would you like? To, I'd like to see Rada in more stuff. She's had a. I'd like to see Rada in heaps more. And actually, you can't give me enough Rosamund Pike. No, I know she got like an extra boost with Gone Girl, 
there was a huge window there between Gone Girl and one of those Bond films where she started as a Bond girl where you barely saw her on screen. And I think she's such a great actor. So, oh, look, I'm feeling loyal to our gal, Rada Mitchell. So maybe Rada. Yeah, let's give it to Rada. I love it whenever she pops up in, uh, not even pops up, even when she she leads, you know, Hollywood movies. Was she in the first Purge movie or was that someone else? I can't recall. No, that was, she wasn't in Purge. She was in two, she's, she played she played Jerry Butler's wife in two uh, has fallen movies, but she wasn't the third. She was replaced by someone else. Yeah, that's right. Uh, by Piper Parabo, Piper Parabo. But um, but ah, tragedy. <laughs> but you know, like like you know, Man on Fire, Finding Neverland, Silent Hill. I know people not a lot of people love Silent Hill, but I think it's pretty good, and she's pretty damn good yeah, in it. Always reliable. Okay. Yeah. All right. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in sixty seconds. Gabe, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? For the most ludicrous name? What about get, the character Lud- Is that what you were doing? Were you setting that up? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. You're picking up right. what I'm putting down. Nice. Well, so what's his character's name? Humans, as in human with a Z. Oh, yes. Humans, brother. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I mean, it's a real disgusting name, but, yeah, Milo plays Rick Rape. Yeah, that's... I, I feel like we can't give an award to a character named that. That's no. just, that's not on. No. I mean, Jerry Butler plays Cable. <laughs> Cable. Yeah. I think Ludacris gets it. And no one in Sarah gets. Humans, brother. Jumps out. No. Except Colonel no. Brendan. <laughs> Colonel Brendan. <laughs> All right. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Well, I hadn't seen Gamer, so I'll have to do a pass there. How about you? Um, there was a whole bunch of ludicrousness. Not uh, that's not a reference to ludicrous at all. That I forgot, like my, like Terry Terry Crews. I forgot that Terry Crews was in the film. <laughs> so that was a great surprise when he popped up. How about surrogates? Nah, nothing. The movie's so forgettable that you just you're not going to believe this though. What I actually completely forgot about Bruce Willis's wigs. Oh really? Oh, yeah. that's the only thing I remembered. Yeah, I actually recalled him walking the streets. You know, in his blood and blood bone physical form with his sort of like, you know, shaved head and his beard. But I actually had forgotten about that kind of shiny version of him with a terrible fringe at the start. So, yeah, that that to me. Hmm. Um, so it's up against – it's Terry versus the okay. the furry hat. No, give it to give it to Rose. Or, I mean, I didn't remember that Rosamund Pike was in this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. They had that plot. Well, maybe Surrogates has to win. To, okay, give it to Surrogates. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of its own. Uh, so if imitation is the ultimate flattery, Gabe, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say these films do not have a legacy. I agree. I mean... The best they're getting is this right now and us. <laughs> like, Yeah. Critic... Joe Newminer from the New York Daily News agreed, calling it a Xerox of a Xerox mm-hmm. and citing a number of films that supposedly takes elements from, including The Matrix and Rollerball. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would agree with Critic, whatever their name was, yep. Yep, Joey Boy. All right. In that case, uh, yeah, it's a, a zip and a zip for both these. Okay, okay. It's come to that time of the podcast. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, mm-hmm. named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. 
So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Gamer or Surrogates. And they're both set in a world where society escapes reality by living via real-life avatars and a man tries to stay alive while exposing a conspiracy which will affect the freedom of the human race. Just imagine this. We're across the desk of a big Hollywood executive producer and they say, make us a sequel. So which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Mm. Well, where do both of these movies end? Surrogates ends with the destruction of all robots. Yep. So maybe there's something there. There's like new robot Anyway, and Gamer ends with what's the, the society and slayers, do they continue to exist? Well, I suppose so. You mean the people trying to free people from being enslaved, right? Well, do the games themselves still exist? I mean, I presume. I presume Though so. he deals with Michael C. Hall, it's not like that somehow switches off uh, the game called Society, right? Exactly. So conceivably there'll be another game that will appear somewhere in the world of Gamer. Right. And in Surrogates they could start creating their own robots. I feel like there'll still be a group of people who actually enjoy this whole Avatar lifestyle. Also, the budget too. We'll be aware of that. So Gamer tanked, made for $50 million. Did forty million? Okay. Surrogates made for eighty. Didn't do very well either. But at least he made one hundred twenty million and has Bruce Willis. And maybe we can get Bruce Willis back for a day for a million bucks and just. But okay, so if at the end of Surrogates, robots have all been decommissioned, you could just do a really, I guess, I'm going to say easy reversal of the premise where like six or seven years after the events of surrogates, people start using robots illegally to commit crimes and Bruce Willis needs to get his old robot back to fight them, you know. Or what if Bruce Willis at the end of surrogates is the person who pulls the plug because he doesn't believe in people, you know, living their life vicariously through a robot avatar. What if he, like James Cromwell, suffers an accident of some sort and to investigate a murder of, say, his wife, who he's reunited with at the end of the first film, he has to actually become a robot avatar to try and track down her murderer. Wow, he's got a dead kid and a dead wife. But, hey, <laughs> if the dead kid motivated, well, it was meant to motivate the first film, but if he's a person who never wants to use an avatar, what are you making the person who has no choice but to use it? Surely we can do better than just fridging Rosamund Pike. Come on. Um okay. Either she's kidnapped or something. But what if, for example, oh, nice. Okay, <laughs> she's still she's still a rubbish plot device, but she's just not dead. <laughs> like, what if, for example, either her or him? It makes sense. It's him, right? The person who least liked robot avatars is then forced to become one again. Yeah, totally. And I guess, like, in a world where there's no more robot avatars, <laughs> as if someone wouldn't be like, "Hey, I'm going to get out my old robot avatar and commit some crimes because." I'm fucking invincible. Exactly. Like as if in the same way that in the first surrogates there were the reservations of people who, dang it, we just don't want robots. Surely there'd be a whole bunch of people holding out being like, oh, man, I just want my robot back. Yeah, that makes sense. So then why, what would, it, would happen? Would there be a series of people who are committing crimes with robots, they've dig them out of the old attic and somehow done their own little hack so they can sort of run them independently? without using some sort of giant sort of universal server. And he has to basically go on the run, literally, because now he can run again, having been paralysed. He can now run in his robot. And what happens next? I mean, wouldn't there be this huge group of people massively 
aggrieved by not having robots, which for the robots were a great accessibility device. You know, can we, like, is there a, is there a... uh, Oh, so basically it's this sort of like rising of the disabled class who now have been told they can't walk anymore. Yeah. And they're really angry. Or see, or hear. Yeah, totally. And so what happens is all these people who are empowered are like, hang on. It's fine for you guys to pull the pin here on us, on yourselves because you can walk around and see in here. How about us? So this whole underclass starts sort of like revolting until – and what happens then? Are they going to try and overthrow the the abled? Yeah. It, it ends with Bruce Willis finding their non-avatar selves and just pushing a bunch of disabled people out of their beds. Like that's yeah, that's a downer. That's a real downer. Doesn't sound very heroic, does it? Yeah, and also too, <laughs> no. really hard for the audience to not actually be on board for the uh, the revolters. Like, I'm t- but maybe that's what we want. Maybe maybe if it's a movie about saying, hey, actually, you know, this bullshit moral certainty you have about not wanting people to have robot avatars for a lot of people. In the same way, for like, you know, we were talking about Twitter and Instagram. For a lot of people, like. Twitter is a garbage cesspool hellscape. But for a lot of people, it's provided an opportunity for them to be heard in a way that they weren't before. Heard so and like connected. Being like, oh, yeah. Yeah, so being like, oh, fuck, the world would be so much better without Twitter. It's like, look, I don't have an opinion on that, but for a lot of people it's been empowering for them. Like it's given brain worms to a shit ton of people. But, you know, uh, scale hands, you know, uh, pros and cons. So maybe there is... A way to have like a a an interesting philosophical or thematic argument within this movie that was otherwise lacking in the first. So the moral of the story would basically would be in the first film in Surrogates, we've got one extreme. Every single person lives their life, including Bruce Willis, through a surrogate, right? And the second film, when the first film ended, we went to the reverse. Every single person now has lost their robot and we're back to what we'd call normality. Mm-hmm. And this film, basically the lesson here is, you know what, maybe halfway in between, maybe moderate is the way to go here. Like plenty of people had their lives improved by these surrogates. So why should they suffer? Why can't they walk? Why can't they leave their house through their robots? Just because Bruce Willis didn't like the fact that Rosamund Pike, his wife, you know, didn't communicate with him openly. And so he basically ruins it for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know how we dress that up with a murder mystery plot. Maybe we don't even need that. Maybe this is just a series of conversations between differently abled people uh, about the pros and cons of having robot avatars. It's a, it's a, it's an art house film now. No, no. Here's an angle for you. Okay, hit me. He go. He essentially a lot of people are like committing theft or stealing power or stealing robot parts. Okay. Yep. And he goes on an investigation to try and find out who these people are and perhaps someone has died and that's sort of the start of the journey. He begins what he thinks is a murder investigation and he thinks he's tracking down some sort of, you know, dynamic illegal international syndicate Mm. and actually takes him to this underground group and he realises that he has found the people he always wanted to find but actually they're comparatively innocent or they're a bit like Peter Pan, right? Not Peter Pan, they're a bit like Robin Hood. They're in the same way that Robin Hood, you know, steals the rich, gives the poor. These guys are stealing from the rich to empower the uh, people who don't aren't abled in the same way. Yeah, 
And so he realises that he solves the mystery but decides not to report them and perhaps realises that maybe he was wrong all along and maybe there's a halfway point which isn't as extreme as his first view and that's the way a society should do work going forward. Totally. He get what about what about this? Halfway through the movie, Bruce Willis's character gets million dollar baby. What do you mean a million dollar baby? I didn't get it. Well, you know, in the film Million Dollar Baby, halfway through, Hilary Swank suffers a catastrophic neck injury that causes her to be paralyzed. Oh. So halfway through the movie, yeah, he suffers that injury and realizes that no, but isn't that a bit cliche that basically he only agrees to help these people when it actually helps him? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's like that thing when people, uh, yeah, totally, they're like, wow. Like in The Simpsons. Uh, I guess I never thought that women had feelings until I had a daughter. Exactly, exactly. What the fuck is yeah. wrong with you, fucking? That's right, yeah. Oh, okay. I think actually he has to be able the entire time and now he just actually learns to empathise more. Okay, that's 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 probably better, yeah, yeah. So what's the title for our sequel to Surrogates? For our art house, <laughs> um, empathetic uh, sort of g- uh, film of various conversations in coffee shops called. Sorry, gets. Is that a speech impediment? Are we saying that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Are we saying that people with speech impediments have been uh, benefited from having a surrogate? Well, potentially, but no, I was talking like I was trying to play on it, not aliens, alien aliens. Oh, I see. This is already called surrogate. What if we just call it surrogate? Oh. And he is revealed to be the ultimate surrogate. Okay. It actually makes no sense, but uh, it- The surrogate. Um, Yeah, the surrogate. uh, Starring Paul Giamatti and Tony Collette. Yeah. In fact, I think we should just go back to that. That's our pitch. The pitch is your pitch for the Tony Collette and Paul Giamatti movie, and we're calling it The Surrogate. (laughs) Bang. And that's how you don't make a sequel to Surrogates. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, Big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, you can find my worst surrogate self on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your mates and spread the word. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye, man. Goodbye.